It is good to be back with you again. I was here maybe a month or so ago, and, and what I like about coming here is not just having an opportunity to share with you, but <clears throat> also have the opportunity to give Pastor Brent a night off, which uh, he, he really deserves that, because it, it's hard to uh, be up here week in and week out, and uh, he typically teaches longer, usually around 40, 45 minutes or so. And that's, that's usually about 15 minutes longer than our, our teaching team on the weekend. So it's good to give Brent uh, a night off. So I'm glad to kind of pitch, pinch hit for him. And uh, before I get into the message, this is the last time that we are going to meet before the election. So last night uh, for Wednesday night community, uh, by, hopefully by next Wednesday night, we will know uh, definitively who uh, our elected president is. But I really feel like it's important that we take a moment to pause and pray uh, for the days leading up to the election. And uh, I don't think anybody really knows how things are going to turn out or if things will get better or worse after next Tuesday. But here's two things that I do know. The first is this. I hope you vote. If you haven't voted yet, I really want to encourage you to vote. And secondly, is to remember the power of what we are doing right now. What we're doing right now is a great testament to the gospel message. Because I'm sure represented in this room are all sorts of political persuasions. And yet, what are we all doing? We are coming together in one accord and focusing on Jesus Christ. It's no secret that America is divided, right? Division amongst people isn't something that's new. Just taking a casual glance at the New Testament, one can see that the early church was racked with division. Division was everywhere, and this division was all taking place in the context of Roman oppression. So a lot of tension, a lot of stress was happening during the formation of the early church. There were countless numbers of issues that were facing the early church. People were wondering what to do with these long-held practices. They were wondering what to do with those pesky Gentiles. What do we do with food offered to idols? What do we do with circumcision? What is the role of women in the church? You can see it was one dividing line after another, which is why Paul wrote under the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to the Galatians and reminded them and reminds you and I today that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for you. You are all one in Jesus Christ. Isn't that good? I love that. So let us remember that no matter what happens next Tuesday, that we will still come together next Wednesday night, not as Republicans or Democrats or socialists or libertarians, but as followers of Jesus Christ who have our eyes fixed on him. Let me pray over our election, okay? 
Father God, we do thank you so much that we live in a country that is free, a country where we uh, get to enjoy democratic principles. And one of those deeply held principles is the fact that we as free men and women can go to our polling stations and vote to elect our next president. God, we pray for peace leading up to election. We pray for peace after the election. God, our hope and prayer is that by Tuesday night, when we all go to bed, that we will know who our president is, that this thing won't drag out. God, we do not need that. We pray for a defining victory for whoever it is. And God, remind us, and may we live in the truth and the fact that you are in control, that you are still sitting on the throne. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for doing that. That's really been kind of heavy on my heart. So, well, tonight we're going to continue our series, Jesus Behaving Badly. And tonight we'll look at a puzzling and offensive question by asking, is God an angry God or a loving God? Some years ago, myself and a friend of mine, we sat across from each other enjoying a coffee at the Bipartisan Cafe in Portland, Oregon. Bipartisan is a popular coffee shop on the east side of Portland in the Montevilla district. And this particular morning had its regular crowd of college students studying, uh, business people were meeting, and the cafe displays political artwork on its walls, and including representations of every American president. And although the artwork displayed is bipartisan, my friend certainly wasn't. On this morning, we were gathering not to discuss politics, but to discuss theology. The guy was a boyfriend of one of my wife's coworkers, and he had a chip. <laughs> this guy had a chip on his shoulder towards God and towards Christians in in particular, which is a very popular sentiment in Portland. He was exactly the kind of person I was looking to interview as part of a class I was taking at a local seminary. So our meeting was meant to be this this sort of open-ended discussion regarding his thoughts on God, the Bible, and Christianity. And as we settled into our seats, I threw out my first question to him, asking him his thoughts about the Bible. Now, uh, admittedly, that's not exactly an easy question to respond to. And his response was both honest and stunning. He said, I've read the Bible and I know everything about it. That's what I did. I thought, wow, that's pretty impressive especially considering the dude was about 25 years old at the time. And after hearing him elaborate some more, I asked him about his thoughts on God. And he said that God, God strikes me as a schizophrenic maniac, happy one minute and spiteful and vindictive the next. And I was thinking, okay, that's, that's a fair response. 
I mean, after all, God did smite quite a few people throughout the Old Testament, right? His response, I think, is fairly typical amongst people who have just kind of casually engaged with the scriptures. And I think that most people, Christian and non-Christian alike, they look at God the way that my friend did. They essentially see two gods. There is God as an angry God, the father in the Old Testament, who is a sort of a, a cosmic ogre, who's just sitting up there in heaven with his arms crossed, just waiting for us to mess up. They see God kind of how the early American pastor, Jonathan Edwards, shared in his famous sinner, uh, sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He said, the wrath of God burns against them. Their damnation does not slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over them. And the pit hath opened its mouth under them. Not a feel-good message, is it? I read that whole sermon and I was like, holy cow, I'm glad I wasn't there. But Ed Edwards, he just might have been the first uh, fire and brimstone preacher in America. I, I bring that up because I think that a lot of people today still view God in that way. But then there's also Jesus who's represented as a kind of uh, a kind, loving God, the Son, in the New Testament, who showed incredible compassion for those who needed it most. So, which is he? Is he an angry God, or is he a loving God? Well, we know that God is the same God, right? God is the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He does not change. So is he angry or is he loving? Well, that's kind of like asking, are you an angry parent or a loving parent? If you're like most parents, you're both, right? <laughs> I, asked, I asked that question of my two of my three boys who are living at home. I said, guys, I'm, I'm doing this message on, is God a loving God or an angry God? Do you guys think I'm, a, I'm an angry dad or a loving dad? And they said, yeah, dad, you're both. You probably lean more on the angry side though. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, since Jesus took on human form in every way and all of the emotions that goes with being human, it stands to reason that he would become angry from time to time as well. And the thing that we have to remember about God is that everything about him, everything about his character, about the way that he interacts with humanity, about the way that he interacts with his creation, everything comes from a place of love. When he instructed Adam and Eve and told them that they may eat of the fruit of the tree, of, of, uh, of any tree in the garden except for one. That was coming from a place of love. 
And, and the thing about God is that he's not capricious in that he leaves you wondering why he is angry. Some of you have grown up with a parent who would get angry and you had no idea why. So as a kid, you walked on eggshells in your home, never quite knowing what it was that would set your mom or your dad off. Some of you know what I'm talking about. God, he's not like that. God is very clear, and he tells us in his word the things that he gets angry about. And what he gets most angry about is sin. He gets angry about sin because sin destroys. And it destroys the thing that he loves most, you and me. Becky Pippert, in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, says this. She says, think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships? Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. As a parent, as a grandparent, you get this, don't you? When you see your child doing crazy things, you step in. You provide corrective action. You give your kid a timeout. Or if they're older, you take their car keys. Whatever it is, you do this because you want something better for your child. Which is why God even went so far as to warn Adam and Eve, telling them what would happen if they disobeyed. That's just good parenting, isn't it? Just like you do with your, with your children and grandchildren. Although in our fallen nature, we, we don't love the way that God does, but we do our best to guide our kids all from a place of love. The psalmist reminds us that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. There are two things for us to jot down or consider when it comes to God's anger. The first is this. His anger is always temporary. His anger is always temporary. The prophet Isaiah reminds us of this. He says, for I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would fail before me and the souls which I have made. Likewise, the psalmist writes, for his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but what? Joy comes in the morning. Amen to that. God's anger, although righteous, is temporary. With the hope that any anger displayed by God will lead people to repentance. Second thing to write down is his anger is restorative. His anger is restorative. 
What I shared with my friend over coffee is that God did get angry with the Israelites. And he did punish them by allowing other nations to come and conquer them. But it was all done temporarily. And with the hope that the Jewish nation would repent of their sins and turn to God. What we see when we read the scriptures is that God was then and he is now a God of second chances. And that to me is the overarching, the overarching beauty of the scriptures. God has been and will always be the pursuer of man. Even when we fall and we miss the mark, when we get out into the weeds, God is there to bring you and I back onto a right, straight path. He is our lover. And he desires to bring us back into a right relationship with him. And we see this theme of second chances all throughout the scriptures. The way it goes is this. God gives his people a directive. His people disobey. That's what we do, right? He corrects. His people are repentant. God restores, and the cycle starts over again. We see this time and time again in the scriptures. God loves people so much that he raised up leaders. He sent prophets, and then finally, he sent his own son, all representative of another chance for humanity. Now, since this series we're in is specific to the person of Jesus Christ, we'll look at this question in light of who he was. Was Jesus angry or was he loving? And there were plenty of things for Jesus to be angry about, as there are today. As Max Lucado, the author, has said, are you ticked off at religion? So was Jesus. Are you sick of church-going finger pointers? So was Jesus. Are you weary of people who call themselves God-fearers but behave like people-haters? So was Jesus. What we learned from Jesus is that being angry is a good thing if it's for the right thing. When you think of Jesus getting angry, think of all the stories that you know of him in Scripture. What's the first scene that pops into your mind with him being angry. You got it? For me, it's when he's overturning the, the tables in the temple. Anybody else go there? Yep, okay, okay. <laughs> Remember, he declared, my temple will be called the house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. By that example and many others, Jesus shows us what to be angry about. Now remember that any anger Jesus displayed was always in response to sin. And there were two things in particular that made Jesus really angry. The first is hypocrisy. And the second is taking advantage of the vulnerable. So when it came to hypocrites, <laughs> The most hypocritical people of Jesus' day and the ones whom he directed most of his anger towards were the religious elite. 
right? In his time on earth, Jesus displayed incredible compassion and care that seemed to be absent from the religious leaders of the day. Pastor Tim Harlow, in his book, What Made Jesus Mad? Isn't that a great title? What Made Jesus Mad? He says, there is something worse than your sin, the hypocrisy about your sin. That's what Jesus was most upset about when it came to the religious rulers. It's not that they were sinners. That's obvious, right? It was the hypocrisy that surrounded their sin. They were the overseers, the one responsible for teaching people about the truths of God. And yet they were shackling the people with strict rules and guidelines that they had to follow. Instead of leading with the care and compassion of God, they were leading with the stern adherence to the law. Jesus, he became keenly aware of their lack of compassion. And he calls them out on it. In the book of Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says, then, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And then Jesus pronounces the seven woes onto the Pharisees. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You what? Hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you have made them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you blind guides, you blind fools, you blind men. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. I'm sorry. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. You snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? That is quite the name-calling tirade, isn't it? 
I think we would all agree, Jesus was a little bit angry there. Seven times, he calls them hypocrites. And that word, hypocrite, is a Greek word that means an actor, pretending to be something that you're not. Jesus was angry with the religious leaders because in their strict adherence to the law, they were leaving out the more important matters like justice, mercy, faithfulness. It shouldn't be lost on any of us to remember that as Jesus was dealing with the religious leaders, they were the ones telling Jesus that he couldn't heal on the Sabbath all the while plotting his death, crucifixion. Hypocrites. You know, whether Jesus was angry or loving with people was usually determined by posture. We see that with our own children, don't we? As parents, we understand that our kids are going to mess up. They're going to do stupid things. But if when caught, what is their posture? Is it one of humility or is it one of defiance? That determines your course of action with them, doesn't it? The posture of the Pharisees was one of defiance. And to illustrate this, Jesus told a parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, swindlers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that is required. But the tax collector, he stood at a distance, unwilling even to lift up his eyes to heaven. Instead, he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Humility this is what we learn from this. Humility is the key to appeasing the anger of God. And King David reminds us of, of, of this by writing, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. The other thing that made Jesus particularly angry was when people would take advantage of the vulnerable. In his book, Justice, I highly recommend you read it, Dr. Nicholas Walterstorff, he coins a phrase that he calls the quartet of the vulnerable. The vulnerable being the poor, the foreigner residing within your borders, the orphan, and the widow. One passage in scripture is where all the whole quartet appears in Zechariah chapter seven. This is what the Lord Almighty said, administer true justice. 
Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the foreigner or the poor. Because of the writings of the Old Testament, it was natural for Jesus to have a real affinity for these people groups. Jesus became angry with his disciples when they tried to shoo away the children. Remember that? Jesus used a widow to show the importance of pure giving. He said at the beginning of his ministry that he was anointed to preach the good news to who? To the poor. These groups, along with others like women and lepers and the disabled, were people who Jesus were drawn to. People who were typically overlooked. The care that Jesus displayed for the overlooked and forgotten is why Timberline is so active in U-Count. U-Count ministry that focuses on saving people from human trafficking. It's why we're so involved with Royal Family Kids, an organization that cares for foster children. It's why we started Serve 6-8 several years ago to care for those who need a hand up here in Larimer County. Now, let's turn our attention to Jesus as a loving God. This is easy, right? This is the easy part of it. It should come as no surprise to any of us because most people, when they think of Jesus, they think of him as loving. And there are numerous examples of Jesus displaying love as noted in the people groups I had mentioned earlier. But I want to highlight one example of Jesus displaying love. After his denial of Jesus, his good buddy Peter went back to doing the only thing that he knew how to do, and that was fish. So one morning after pulling an all-nighter and not catching anything, Jesus shows up. And he shows up not to just cook Peter a breakfast, but to also invite Peter back into a right relationship with him. To tell Peter and to show Peter that he loves him. And to remind him of the big plans that he had for him. Remember, Peter, you're the rock. You're the rock the church is going to be built upon. I need to remind you of that. So in John chapter 21, we see this exchange. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. 
you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. God in pursuit over breakfast. Jesus asked Peter three times if he loved him. Because three times, remember, Peter had denied that he even knew who Jesus was. Jesus wanted to publicly ask Peter these questions because Peter had publicly denied that he knew Jesus. It's interesting that after the resurrection, Peter was one of the first people that Jesus showed himself to. And we don't know exactly what happened in their conversation, but we do know that in this situation, this meal at breakfast, that Jesus wanted to publicly acknowledge Peter and show him that he still loved him. Why would Jesus do all of this? Because remember, God is a God of second chances. The chance to redeem ourselves and to be redeemed by God always comes through the person of Jesus Christ. Always. And this story fits perfectly with what I have thought as I've spent the last two weeks preparing for this message. And what I'm sure many of you have been thinking as you've been sitting nice and politely here for the last half hour or so. What you really want to know is if God is angry with you. Some of you grew up in a home, I did, where uh, your dad was a strict disciplinarian. And what you have done is you now project your dad's attributes onto God. So growing up, you felt like you could never do anything right in your dad's eyes. And that's how it feels when it comes to your relationship with God. You feel like you can't do anything right and that God is always angry with you. We had a man here about two years ago in this room on Wednesday night. He said, that is the one thing that I can't get past. He's a 70-year-old man. I feel like God is always angry with me. Wow. Some of you might be at a real low spot in your life tonight <clears throat> because of something that you've done or a decision that you've made. You might even be at the end of your rope when it comes to this whole God thing. You might even be feeling guilty about having such thoughts. But I want to encourage you right now and tell you that God is not angry with you and remind you of this great quote from Brennan Manning who wrote in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, another book I highly recommend you read. He said that God is not moody or capricious. He knows no seasons of change. He has a single relentless stance towards us. He loves us. He is the only God that man has ever heard of who loves sinners. False gods, the gods of human manufacturing, despise sinners. 
But the father of Jesus loves all, no matter what they do. But of course, this is almost too incredible for us to accept. It is, isn't it? If you are sinning, confess. If you've messed up, do what Pastor Derry talked about this past weekend. Say, I'm sorry. Consider what is your posture before God? Is it one of remorse, having a contrite spirit, humility? If so, God's word tells us that God will not ignore you, but wants to extend to you his love and forgiveness. Is that good news? Come on. I love that. And we're reminded of his love for us as we come to the communion table. It's at this table that we're reminded of the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. And it's here that we try to identify with Christ in his sufferings and hear the words of the prophet Isaiah. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, say that with me, we are healed. So uh, the band is going to play. And as they play, I want to encourage you uh, to go to the tables. There's two tables up here, and I think one in the back where the communion elements are. Take, uh, take the cup and bring it back to your seat, and we'll partake in communion together. With the bread, we are reminded of the broken body of Jesus. Jesus said, eat this bread in remembrance of me. And with the cup, we were reminded of the blood that Jesus shed on our behalf. Jesus said, drink this in remembrance of me. Father God, we thank you so much for our time together. We thank you that you are a God of second chances. We thank you that you're a God who offers your love and forgiveness, your grace and mercy to us every single day. May we be men and women who extend the same to those that we come in contact with. God, may you would go ahead of us as we part ways. And we pray that and we look forward to our time to gather again next Wednesday. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, thank you for coming, everyone. Uh, just a, a little heads up, we finished early. So we're about 13 minutes early. So I encourage you not to go pick up your kids just yet because they might still be in some kind of activity. So just feel free to mingle in here. But go in peace, have a great week.